our Bible reading today comes from the book of Philippians, starting at chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Thank you, Millie. G'day, folks. Uh, Youth Church, that's your cue. If you'd like to head up the back and see Joe. Yeah, we'd love to. Uh, I'd love for you to head out. The rest of us, we are going to camp out in Philippians. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. It's good to have you along. Um, please have that part of the Bible open. And if you don't own a Bible, you do now. Go and grab one at the back. Write your name in it. It's yours. We want you to be able to uh, not just follow along with us here, but we want you to have uh, access to God's Word all the time. And so um, please make sure that you do. Um, We are starting a a series, a new series, a new sermon series in the book of Philippians. It's very different from the Old Testament book of Daniel that we've just come from. Uh, It's a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi, that is modern-day Greece, a church that he established probably around about 10 years prior. And because it's so different from Daniel in its style... This is a personal letter from one man to a group of people, not, not a narrative or an apocalyptic text. Like there's no four-headed leopards coming out in, in the Philippians, right? Yeah? We saw that in Daniel, but we, don't, we won't see that here. But because it is so different, we're going to read it different. We're going to slow down. We're going to focus on much smaller sections, you'll notice. It's not three or four chapters this week. It's 18 and a half verses. Sometimes we're going to slow down to the point of going word by word. And the reason we're going to do that is because Paul is not telling big, broad, brushstroke accounts of events that happened in history. He's making arguments. 
He's using rationale and logic to personally persuade his addressees, that is, these people that he knows personally. He's writing to persuade them of things that are vitally important to live as Christians waiting for Jesus' return. And it's because of Paul's convictions about Jesus, that is, it is because he is fully convinced that Jesus really did come from heaven incarnate, made man. He really did live a perfect representative life. He really did die a substitutionary death for sinners. He really did rise to new life to offer and promise forgiveness and similar new life to all who would turn to him in faith. Because Paul is so fundamentally convinced of this, this gospel has become central to his life. It's become central to his identity. It's become central to his purposes, to his actions, to his interactions. And Paul's writing to persuade the Philippians and remind them and persuade us as readers of the same to hold this same gospel, this central, this gospel central in our lives too. How about we pray and ask that God would help us to do that as we turn to the, the book itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can be fully persuaded of everything that we've heard about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, and that fully persuaded by that, we would hold this proclamation of the enormity of of what uh, what he's done and who he is as central in our own lives not just for the good of many but for the glory of your name in jesus we pray amen now hopefully you picked up an outline on your way in uh three points that i want to sort of turn to from the text and it's all about making the gospel central the first point's there on your outline. The gospel, you'll notice, is central to Paul's relationships. Where do we see this? We see this in the very first couple of verses. Paul's letter, you'll notice if you've read any of Paul's letters in the New Testament, they often start the same way. It's according to the, you know, the common literary conventions, the letter-writing practices of the day. Paul starts by identifying himself. It's exactly the opposite of what we do in our modern, in our modern day. We do that at the end, but no, Paul in his day starts with this. Have a look at verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants, literally slaves of Christ Jesus. That's who's writing the letter. And they're writing it to Christians. Actually, he calls them the saints, you notice. He's writing it to the Christians in Philippi together with their leaders. And then also in line with the letter-writing etiquette of the day, the next thing you say after you've introduced yourself is you talk about the thing you're most thankful for about the people you're writing to. You speak about the fondest memory you have, perhaps the chief reason for this affection. And did you notice what that was in Paul's letter to the Philippians? Verse 3, it's about their partnership in the gospel. Have a look at it. Look at verse 3 with me. Read it. He says this. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now you hear that? That is really super significant. The gospel is so central to Paul's relationship with the Philippian church. It's his fondest memory of them. It's the reason he's writing to them. And, and get this, as Murray just made mention of as well, it's not just that he's saying he's happy that we're all fellow believers in Jesus. Isn't that whoop de doo No. He's using a very specific word here that will come up time and time again. It's this Greek word translated as partnership. And it's used, this word is used to describe the most intimate and deepest of human relationships. This word partnership that's used is more likely to be used in sort of married situations. Spouses and marriages are partners. It's that kind of level of uh, intimacy and deep connection. Or business partners, where there's a significant shared investment 
of time and energy and money. Everyone has skin in the game, so to speak. This is what Paul cherishes most about the Philippian Christians. It's not just a warm fuzzy. It's a genuine gospel-centered relationship where they're united in pouring themselves out for the gospel, committed to doing whatever is necessary with all the resources God has given them to see people transformed and matured by that same gospel of Christ. What does that look like? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It's the exact opposite of what I've seen on Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Anyone ever watched that show? I mean, I'm not advocating it. If you can, if you can stand his atrocious potty mouth, I, I prefer to watch it with the beeped out sort of version, which means it's just a big series of beep and beep. Yeah, it's, it's horrendous. But it makes the point well. Basically, the idea is as a world-class chef, Gordon Ramsay goes around to failing he- uh, hotels and restaurants and tries to, allegedly, help them work out the issue. And more often than not, inevitably, it's a lack of genuine partnership that is causing these businesses to fail. Often there'll be several owners of a business, of a restaurant, who call themselves partners in business, but they fail to understand the significance of the relationship. One owner thinks just by pouring money in, that's what legitimises his partnership. Another owner thinks that if he he or she just shows up at the business, gives time, whether it's productive time or not is irrelevant, but it's just the time given that legitimises their partnership. And the last one is often the one who's providing all the energy. They're often out the back doing all the cooking. But because they're bringing all the energy, doing stuff, they feel justified to sort of skimp on pouring in the finances or pouring in the time to the strategic thinking through whether this is actually working as a business. They're all owners and they're all partners in name only. That's not what we see in the letter to the Philippians. That's not what Paul is talking about. They are genuine partners in the gospel, jointly and deeply invested in using their time, their energy, their money to see the gospel advance. Friends, this is what gospel partnership looked like then. It's what gospel partnership should look like now. Which obviously begs the question. Friends, if Paul came and hung out with us for a couple of weeks at WEC, a couple of months at WEC, and then he wrote us a letter afterwards, would he describe us as partners in the gospel? Or let me make that a little bit sharper again. If Paul come and hung out with you for a couple of months, would he describe you as personally a partner in the gospel? Are you personally deeply invested in seeing the gospel advance here in Wagga, especially through our church family here at WEC, by using your time and energy and resources toward that end? Have you ever wondered that question? It's a good question to ask. In fact, a good way to test yourself in this is ask whether the gospel is costing you in those areas. Is the gospel costing you in terms of your time, energy and money? Or to ask, are you less inclined to bear the cost in one or more of those areas for the gospel's sake, like the failed restaurateurs? Are you willing to put in the time and effort and then think that absolves you from the financial burden of seeing the gospel advance? Or are you the person who's happy to contribute your finances to gospel work but think that that ought relieve you from the time and energy cost? See, neither of those are partnerships. That's not genuine gospel partnership that Paul is speaking about here. It's not the kind of partnership that we ought be aiming for as a church either because through the pen of Paul, God is calling Christians then and now to have the gospel 
at the centre of our relationships, that we would be genuinely able to consider each other partners in the gospel. There's no higher calling. And and I want to make this point actually very explicit here right now. Do you know what? I am extraordinarily grateful to God that we have so many people at work who are partners in the gospel. Can Can I say that quite genuinely? There are so many folk here that put in extraordinary amounts of time and effort into gospel ministries, and you'll be happy to know, I don't have a clue who gives money and how much by design. I, don't have, I have no idea. But I know that $30,000 doesn't fall from the sky every week, uh, every month, every week, I wish. Every month. <laughs> I know for a fact that doesn't happen. It's about how much our budgeted cost is, around about that 32000 And we're raising around about $30,000 a month towards gospel ministries here at work. That doesn't just happen by accident. And it's not actually just about the money, amount of money that's given. Do you know what has made my heart absolutely swell with gratefulness, even in the last couple of weeks? I'll give you one example. We had a trivia night here last Saturday as an opportunity to invite our friends and families from outside of our Christian circles, our church circles, to join with our Christian family, an opportunity to build connections, to join and have some fun together. I spent precisely no time making that happen. But clearly some people did. I got to stick my head in the back door for five minutes after a wedding I saw about 20 pots of soup lined up across the back to feed the masses. I know for a fact that no one put a receipt in for that. The church didn't pay for that. And I personally didn't peel or chop a single carrot or celery stalk. But clearly plenty of you did. And on Sunday, the day after, we had 20 or so new people, newish people from our, to our church, had lunch together, talking about what we're doing as a church, why we're doing it that way, how they can be involved. I wasn't a part of pulling that together, but many of you were. Because I was at Jesus Seriously at my house, where another 20 or so people keep showing up every week to explore whether Jesus is the one worth trusting. And each week, someone else from church shows up at my house with a couple of huge platters to fuel the energy and the relationships as we have those conversations. And I don't even know who's bringing those platters week to week, and they keep showing up. Do you get the picture that I'm painting here? It's amazing stuff. And that is just on top of, that's on top of the dozens of people who pour out significant time and effort to seeing church happen each week here, whether it be in music, whether it be in kids' church, whether it be setting up or packing down morning tea, you name it. Dozens of people serving in a host of ways. What I'm trying to say here, folks, is there has been, and I have noticed, a massive cultural shift in our church family recently. Increasingly, our church family is exhibiting and expressing this kind of gospel partnership that Paul is talking about with people making the gospel central to their relationships and therefore people who are willing to bear the cost of considerable time, energy and money to seeing the gospel dwell richly among us. It is so pleasing. It is so exciting to be a part of. I am grateful to you and to God for it. And while we should be grateful, while we can be pleased, let's not take our collective foot off the pedal, folks, because there is more, plenty more, time, effort and dollars needed to see the gospel impact grow here in Wagga for God's glory. And like Paul, let me say, I don't want to just see a handful or even dozens of people partnering in the gospel. I want every single person here in our church family to take up, get this, the joy and the privilege. And you notice I didn't say the burden? It is a burden. Don't get me wrong. It is hard graft. And it is a joy and a privilege to be called towards that end. 
that's part of our vision here as a church, folks. That's part of our goal here at work. It's for people not to be just mere consumers of the gospel, not to be even connoisseurs of the gospel, you know, experts who sample it and tell you everything that's wrong but don't lift a finger to get it better. No, no, no. We don't want people just to be passengers on the Jesus Express. We want you to be partners in the gospel. And like Paul, friends, our hope and our confidence for each other in this regard ought be that of verse 6. In fact, look at it there with me. Where does Paul's confidence come from that the Philippian church will continue to grow in increasing measure in this direction? He says, my confidence is this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you, that's God. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, that is a serious confidence. That's a confidence that you can bank on. God is not the God of half measures. God will finish what he started. We've got the joy and the privilege of continuing to pray for each other that he would. And especially if you do, friends, if you do realise yourself teetering perhaps in that consumer rather than that part of category with the gospel, then start seeking ways to dig in and praise God you can. But it's not just in the realm of relationships that Paul holds the gospel as central. It's central in the way he prays too. In fact, it's fitting that we go there. In fact, look at how genuinely and affectionately he cares for the Philippian brothers and sisters. Look at verse 8. He's even able, get this, to call God as his witness to the depth of and the sincerity of his affections for them. That's a pretty bold, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? That's not the sort of statement that you made flippantly. I could call God as my witness. To personally testify for my affectionate longing for you. Could you say that of anyone? (laughs) That God would testify of your loving attitude? How do you develop that kind of a feeling? How do you develop that kind of a feeling sincerely for your Christian brothers and sisters? I I hope it doesn't surprise us. The answer is always going to be it's gospel-centered prayer, isn't it? Spending time praying for people is the best way to develop affections for same people. Because when you pray for people, get this, what you're doing is you're actually deliberately carving out time and opportunity to reflect about that person or those people, an opportunity to genuinely consider their circumstances and their needs. And unless you're praying the imprecatory psalms of, you know, you know, the curse psalms, please, Lord, smite Roger in your holy smotiness. He's really bothering. You know, unless you're praying those, which I really don't think is appropriate to pray specifically about individuals, don't do that. But assuming that's not what you're doing, then praying for people will cause you to develop affections and an other person-centeredness, which though it may not immediately or perceivably change the people you pray for, do you realise it will pray, it will profoundly change you first, most likely? I mean, have you noticed that about prayer generally, especially when it's people that you struggle with? It's very hard to pray for someone and stay angry at them at the same time. Have you noticed that? Prayer helps to develop and change your affections for people first. Try it. I mean, look how Paul prays for the Philippians. Of course, he's praying already out of a positive disposition towards them, but look at how he makes the gospel the centre of his prayer life for them. In fact, it's the second point on your, prayer, on your outline, that the gospel is the centre of Paul's prayers. Look at it in verse 9, and 9 to 11. What does pray, Paul pray for the Philippians? Helpfully, he actually answers this question as if he's asked directly. Look at verse 9. And this is my prayer, 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, notice straight away, it's not the wishy-washy, vagary type prayer, I'll pray for you. No, no, it's specific and purposeful. First, he prays that their love would grow, that there would be an abundance of love. That is, he's praying for a feeling among them. He's praying for an emotional response for them. But it's not just an emo- to an emotional end that he's praying for. Notice it's a feeling, love, that's based on right thoughts, knowledge. Do you see that? That your love may abound, the feeling, more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. I mean, in the context, what's the knowledge? It's clearly not the knowledge of renewable energy or economic theory that's fueling the growing love here. No, it's knowledge and discernment of the gospel that's central. In fact, we know this because of the very next verse, because Paul doesn't just tell us what he's praying for them, but why he's praying this. Verse 10, so that. Here's what I'm praying, so that. Paul's praying that the Philippians would have right feelings about God and the gospel, love, based on right thoughts about God and the gospel, knowledge and insight, so that, verse 10, they may be able to firstly discern what is best, secondly, may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, thirdly, be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. There's so much more I could dig in with that, but I'm just going to skip over it a little bit. There are three significant purposes, notice though, that Paul has in mind to their growth in knowledge-based love of God and the gospel. But I want to take you to what is the ultimate end of that prayer. What is the greatest good of praying this way for the Philippians? Look at the end of verse 11. It's to the glory and praise of God. Here's the chief end of Paul's prayer for the Philippians. It's centered on their apprehension of the gospel in thought and feeling, but it's all to the glory of God. Now, practically speaking, I actually like the way that Russ put this in our Bible study group this week. I told him I was going to rip it off him straight away when he said it. He said words to the effect of, what does this look like? This looks like Christians getting better at loving the right things in the right order because we know and love God above all else. Let me say that again, folks. I think it's a really helpful right application personally. This is about Christians getting better at loving the right things in the right order because we know and love God above all else. It's a really helpful way of thinking about this, friends, because I don't think our problem, for, well, the problem for most Christians necessarily is not always loving the wrong things. It might be, that's a different issue. That's maybe something you need to confess and talk about with a brother or sister. Please do so. But for many Christians, it's, it's not loving the wrong things. It's loving the good things at the expense of the best things. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's loving good things at the expense of the best things. It's never missing my weekly catch-up with my high school mates, which is good. But if I'm tired, I'll willingly skip Bible study group time, which is better. Or it's working tirelessly to be well-liked and well-thought of at work, which is good. But I'll spend less time invested in growing my personal closeness and dependence on God, which is best. Do you feel the tension I'm referring to here sometimes, folks? The good becoming the enemy of the best is what they call it. And do you pray for your Christian brothers and sisters on this, friends? I'm not saying that you stop praying about personal matters like finances and jobs and relationships. No, no, those are good. 
But if you're not already, then start praying gospel priorities for your Christian brothers and sisters as well. That's best. Could you imagine for a second, just imagine the effects. Imagine the effects of 300-ish people here at WEC, each praying for each other, that our love and knowledge of Jesus would so grow in abundance exponentially because we want to see God praised and glorified as he deserves in Wagga. Tell me that's not a prayer that God delights to hear, to answer. Tell me that's not a prayer that would be good for Wagga. Tell me that's not a prayer that would glorify God and personally become more fulfilling than anything else you can imagine. That kind of prayerfulness for each other with gospel-centered priorities. And just to show that he wasn't joking, that Paul wasn't just blowing smoke when he was talking about this, Paul is personally a living embodiment of gospel-centeredness, not just in his relationships, not just in the way he prays, but even in his own personal aspirations for life. In fact, it's the third and final point on your outline. The gospel is central to Paul's aspirations. I'm looking here at that, those ch- that chunk, verses 12 to 18. Uh, I'm not sure about you. I used to find this section quite tricky to understand clearly what's going on. So let's just sort of walk through it quickly together. For, I want you to firstly notice, it's, it actually is the first time Paul mentions specifically that he's actually in jail as he's writing. At the end of verse 13, he actually says, I am in chains for Christ. He sort of alluded to the fact, whether I'm in chains or defending. Here he says, I'm in chains for Christ. But he mentions it here, not to bellyache or bemoan his circumstances, because his life's ambition is not focused on the particularities of his circumstances. Do you realize that? Paul's aspirations are not for ease and comfort, they're gospel-centered. In fact, we see this plainly in verse 12, where his focus is on what? It's on the advancement of the gospel. That's his goal. That the gospel of Jesus, of sins forgiven and peace of God available, that people would hear and embrace that message, that that news would would advance, that's Paul's life aspirations. And amazingly even, his imprisonment has been worthwhile to that end. What? How does that work? How can Paul say even my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel? That sounds stupid. (laughs) Because of verses 13 and 14, have a look at them there. Firstly, he says his imprisonment has meant that the entire palace guard, that is everyone involved in keeping him in prison, they've all heard the gospel now. Paul the founding father of the Kairos Ministries. He just happened to be doing it in an orange jumpsuit. Can you imagine the ear bashing he would have given them? Phenomenal. Captive audience. Sorry, the pun had to be made. I had to, I had to do it. The gospel advancing to those who would not have heard it otherwise. Folk who are actually in prison as the Kairos Ministry are doing or folks that are in prison guarding those in prison. And Paul says, that's great news. I've got a bunch of ears I didn't have before. Wow, look at that. Advancement of the gospel. And not only that, in fact, verse 14, he says his imprisonment has caused more brothers and sisters to speak even more fearlessly and courageously about the gospel. Again, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because it feels like, to my understanding or to my way of thinking, it feels like, hang on, Paul's their best player. Having him sidelined, that's a step back for gospel preaching at the time, isn't it? But no, in the wisdom and the power of God, it's been a huge step forward because what's been the result? Many others have stepped into Philly's place. In the wisdom and power of God, 
Paul's persecution has put backbone into the conviction, the convictions of Christians have heard of it. And now they are the ones telling the gospel more often, just as faithfully, more fearlessly to more people. Get that. Get that. More people are hearing the gospel because of Paul's imprisonment. The gospel is advancing. And because the gospel is at the center of Paul's aspiration, even though he's in prison, verse 18 he says, And I rejoice. Wow. It's big stuff, friends. Now, I'm going to skip pretty well over 15 to 17. Hopefully, you've got a chance to look at it more closely during Bible study. It, it, it makes the same point, the gospel being the center of Paul's aspirations. Even as people get this, are preaching Christ from poor motives or to somehow put Paul down as they preach, as long as it's the true Christ and the true gospel, Paul doesn't care. <laughs> Paul doesn't care if people like him more or less because of the gospel being preached, only that people hear and are saved. That's number one as Paul considers his life's goals. So friend, the final question then becomes, and the final question is to ask, is it your life's goal? Seeing the gospel advance and to hold it central in your relationships, in your prayers, in your aspirations and desires for life personally, is that your goal in life? It's an incredibly high bar, isn't it? It's a real challenge to our Western way of thinking, isn't it? And if you're convinced that it is, then I want to encourage you, keep coming along. Make sure you're along each week in this sermon series as we dig into this week by week through Paul's letter to the Philippians, as we seek out what contentment in Christ actually looks like, as we ask God to continue to transform us in this way together. It only happens through knowing and being known by Christ. It's where real contentment is to be found. If you've got any more questions about that, please come and see me afterwards. But how about we pray as we finish up? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for the amazing transformation that you performed in him, on him, and then through him. Not just in the lives of the Philippians, but Father, in the lives of many more people who have heard that same gospel message proclaimed with the same courage and fearlessness, with the same faithfulness that it is you who work by your spirit, regardless of who or where the message is preached to save those whom are yours. And Father, we pray that they would be many. We pray that you would help us to be genuinely partnered with you in this gospel uh, privilege. We pray that it would... Um, exceed the boundaries of our walls here on Sundays, would flow over into our lives and then into our interactions with other Christian ministries in Wagga. We pray that it would be for the glory of your name and the saving of many souls. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.